Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Well, this morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, right where we left off. We'll pick it up again in verse 4. Before we get there, though, let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to come together to learn more about you, your Son, your will, and your ways. May I ask you to speak to each of our hearts. You'd meet each one of us right where we're at. That you would lead us and guide us through this study. That your words would be spoken here this morning. That you would watch over us, protect us, guide us, um, soften our hearts, help us to be more obedient to you, to listen to you, to follow where you lead. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. So, where we left off was in Hebrews chapter 6. We went over verse 4, but we're going to go through it again one more time with a little bit of explanation. So, Hebrews chapter 4, or Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. So verse 7 and 8 gives you a little bit of explanation to what he's saying here also. For the earth which drinks... In the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near being cursed. Whose end is it to be burned? So I think what the writer of Hebrews is telling us here is that well, it sounds impossible for those who were once enlightened, those who were once believers walking in the light, partakers of the good things of God, and have walked away from that, to be come into repentance again. Humanly speaking, I would say it's impossible. And that's why I think verse 7 and 8 is also saying to you, the farmer is not in control of the rain. Right? So... I have an uncle who lives out in eastern Colorado. He was a, a county commissioner for a long time. And at one point, I think before he ever became a county commissioner, they tried this thing called cloud seeding. Where they would seed the clouds trying to make it rain. And what they found was that it could, they could make it rain. But oftentimes, they could also, it would also bring hail. So while they tried to play God and make it rain, control the rain, they also brought on themselves some pretty hard times as well. So when man thinks that they've got it all figured out and we're going to do what we think is best, God is still in control. 
so the, the farmer cannot bring the rain, right? And that's what he's saying here. The farmer can't do it. The farmer can't bring the rain. The farmer can't make the crops grow. But when weeds and thistles and briars come, the farmer has no choice but to burn the field or to cultivate the field or plow the field and start over, right? It's kind of the farmer's only option. Or just to give up and walk away completely, right? He can walk away, but then he's no longer a farmer. So I think it's speaking to this idea for it's impossible for those who were once enlightened. Humanly speaking, it would be impossible for us to bring them back to repentance, right? I'm going to talk him into it. But with God, all things are possible. And we have to remember, too, we went over this last time, but we'll go over it again. Hebrews, or I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may withstand, you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So multiple times we're told to stand, right? But we're also told right here that the battle is not against flesh and blood. And I don't think I can say that enough. So here... In Hebrews, we're reading about a person who's once walked away, who's tasted the things of God, but has walked away. The battle is not against them, right? You understand that? That it's a spiritual battle. So what can we do? We can pray for them. Does that make sense? You're not going to cunningly talk them into this. You're not going to... Um, do anything other than what God has led you to do. And if God's led you to go speak to them openly and honestly, then yes, you should do that. But first and foremost, you should be praying. And do not see it as a battle against you against them, because that's not where the battle is, right? We just read that. Very important. Okay. We'll continue on here in Ephesians and take a look at some of the tools. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So here we're told to put on the belt of truth, right? So your work belt, right? if you're in construction, you have a, a work belt, a tool belt, right? 
that's where all your tools hang. Yeah. So when they, during this time, when they had a belt and they had long robes, they would gird up their, their long robes and tuck them into their belt. Their belt had a purpose for doing work. But here we're told the belt is the belt of truth. So one of the tools that we need to use regularly, and I'd say to you, most everyone wears belts. If you don't, you should. But the tool you should use regularly is truth, right? When our words are truthful all the time, that becomes a tool for us to use. Others can see that, right? For us to do a work that God's called us to do, we have to use the truth. That's important. Do you understand that? Can't be halfway in this. Can't be sometimes. Have to be truthful. Other people have to see that. So, then it talks about the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness, right? So, these fiery arrows that come against us, they make it past our shield of faith. Our right living should extinguish them. These fiery darts, this breastplate of righteousness, right living, walking with God, right? Asking him to forgive us for our sins, receiving the forgiveness he gives us every single time. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Blessed are the messengers that spread the gospel of peace. And how do they spread it? They take it to people, right? With their feet. They walk, right? So we should be spreading the good news of Jesus. That's one of the things that we're to do, okay? Then continuing on, above all, so above all, so it sounds like this one's kind of important, taking the shield of faith with, with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So what does this shield of faith look like when the fiery darts come in your thought lives of whatever it is that the enemy is trying to tempt you to do? Or get you not to do. You know, there's things that God has asked you to do that the enemy wants to take away from you, or wants you make you ineffective. Right? When we lose our truthfulness, when we lose our right standing, our righteousness with God by the way we live, the enemy makes us ineffective. Right? So these darts come constantly. I'd say in your mostly in your thought life. And what's the best way to quench all the fiery darts? Because we're to put this piece of armor above all, it says, is the shield of faith. And I would say to you that that is knowing God's word and that believing what God tells you in his word, right? Or believing what God has put on your heart and following through with it. If God's asked you to pray for someone, put someone on your heart, and the enemy comes against that and says, oh, no. Don't pray for them. They're mean to you, right? What should you do? Hold up your shield of faith. And the God says, I should love my enemies. I should pray for those who spitefully use me and persecute me. So when I do that, when I say, no, this is how it works, that becomes important, right? You understand all that? Then we move on. Do you understand the shield of faith? We need to go over that anymore. You're good on that. 
Are you just telling me you're good? No. You're actually good on it? Okay. So then continuing on here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What is the sword of the Spirit, the sword we're supposed to use? What is it? It's the Word of God. We just read it. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So the helmet of salvation, we put that on. We've been over this before. Headshots and death blows. Yeah, but you have the helmet of salvation on. So while the enemy come against you and attack you, the enemy cannot take away your salvation. Does that make sense? You get that? Headshots, death blows, video games. All right. So the helmet of salvation. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Right? So the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So, do you all remember, after Jesus was baptized, he went out into the wilderness and was tempted by, by, by uh, Satan himself? Do you remember this part? He gets baptized, he goes out into the wilderness, he's tempted for 40 days, 40 nights, he fasts, the devil comes to him, tempts him in three different ways, right? Says, well, you must be hungry. Command these these stones to turn into bread. And how does Jesus respond to all three different temptations every time the, the, the enemy comes against him? The word of God says, right? He tells him right where the word of God says. Doesn't he do that? Isn't that how he responds to this? Yeah. yeah. So the sword of the spirit, your weapon, is not to be used against people, right? Because we've been over this. The battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the enemy. And how did Jesus do it? When he was tempted by the devil, he used what God's word said, right? And then when the devil twisted it and tried to mis misuse God's word, Jesus again took him right back to the word and told him what it said. Do you remember that part? So the sword of the spirit, which is the word, is what we're to use. And it's to be used in this spiritual battle and not against people. We're not to go to people and say, this is where you're wrong. This is where you screwed up. This is what God's word says. God hates you. No, we're not to use that, are we? Right? Well, many times you say, whoa, but many times people do that in our society. They use God's word against flesh and blood. And that's not what it's intended for. Now, is God's word important for us understanding how to live rightly, to deal with sin in our lives? And can God's word be used when people are asking what is right and wrong? We went over this last time about the maturing believers and that in, the, in Hebrews, Paul is talking about being immature and still questioning, is this right or wrong? And I can think about that or I can think about people that I've met who are young believers, who will ask, well, is this really a sin or is this really a sin? And as you become a more mature believer, you already know what those answers are, right? So, so we'll continue on here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. 
praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Be watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel. So, this spiritual battle, how is it fought? It is fought with the enemy. It is fought with the word, right? That's what God's word says. When we're tempted, when we're <clears throat> the enemy's trying to make us ineffective in our work for God, we fight that with what the word says. But now with other people, we're to pray all prayers in the spirit. So this is where the battle is. We're to pray in supplication in the spirit. We're to be watchful in perseverance in supplication for all the saints, right? So we're to pray for other believers. We're also told throughout God's word that we're to pray for our enemy, pray for those who persecute us, who spitefully use us. We're to pray always in all circumstances to constantly be in prayer. But what is prayer? It's talking to God. Is that a right or wrong way to enter into that? No. I would say to you that anytime you're talking in your head, out loud, God is listening, right? Whether you're directing it at him or not, he's listening. But specifically, when you want to direct it at him and you come before him and ask him for him to bless your enemies, for him to give you patience, for him to give you wisdom, the words to speak, for him to open the doors he wants you to walk through and close the ones he doesn't, right? We can come to him for all of that. So it's important. This idea that we're to pray at all times. We're to pray for others, loving others, not arguing and fighting with others, but being mindful of other people. Where they're at, and that it's not our job to bring them back to repentance, but it is our job to pray for them, right? We're not going to argue with them. We're not going to fight with them. We're not going to debate with them. We're just going to pray for them, right? And we're going to be that light and witness, right? We're going to be truthful in what we say. We're going to have the breastplate of righteousness on. We're going to be that light and witness to them in their lives, even when it's not easy, right? Not easy when someone is mean to you or lies about you. Do not speak out against that. But... We can allow God to, to defend us, God to watch over us, God to fight our battles. Does that make sense? Okay. So while it's impossible for people to come back to repentance, nothing is impossible for God. Nothing at all. Right? Right. So let's go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 23. Are you there? Mm -hmm. You ready? Mm -hmm. 
Matthew 19, verse 23. Are you there? Matthew 19, verse 23. You ready? So Matthew 19, verse 23. When Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So what did we just read? They thought that, well, if you were rich, you were definitely blessed, that God had favor on you, that God loved you. You must be living a right life because God has blessed you with money. But people often mistake money or worldly possessions as things to be held on tightly to. And they are not, right? So while this may have been a contradiction for them during their time, it's also a contradiction for us during our time. We often think of people who are well off or wealthy as having it all and, and Money brings happiness, or money brings pleasure, or money brings whatever else we associate it with. And it turns out, in reality, that's a lie. Money doesn't bring any of that. Money doesn't bring joy. Money doesn't bring happiness. Money does not bring security. Money doesn't bring us anything, right? So here we're told that it's easier, that it's hard for a rich person, not impossible, he doesn't say impossible, but it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on to say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So, you know what the eye of a needle is? Have you ever sewed in a little eyelet there? You put the thread through it, that's the eye of the needle. Think how small that is. Even on the biggest needle you've ever seen, how easy would it be for a camel you know how big a camel is to go through that. <laughs> you know, that's what he's saying. <laughs> and people I've heard people say, oh, this explained differently, or this really means this. Well, let's just look at the text and what it says. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, to go to heaven. There you go. I think that's exactly the point Jesus is trying to make. And God often does this throughout the Bible. He makes these very extreme contradictions. Did you know that? And this would be one of them. And why do you think he does that? Yeah, I think so we understand it better. That's a good one. I think another reason that he does that is to get our attention, right? This gets our attention when we have these extreme contradictions because it makes us think, well, how could a camel ever go through the eye of a needle? Or maybe that's only me that thinks that. When I hear this, I'm thinking, well, a camel could never go through the eye of a needle. That's impossible, right? So he gets me thinking. 
right? But then it always, he always brings it back in these extreme contradictions back to himself, back to Jesus, back to God, right? So he says, humanly speaking, this is impossible. It's impossible, humanly speaking, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say, but with God, all things are possible, right? So, isn't that sound a lot familiar or very familiar to what we're reading in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4? It's impossible for these people to come back to repentance. Humanly speaking, that is true. But for God, all things are possible, right? So, for these people that have walked away, because I've heard this explained that, well, those are just people that were never saved or whatever it is. And I think it brings up this hopelessness. And the God we serve is the God of hope. So anytime I read something in the Bible and it doesn't line up with the character attributes of the God that I know in the Bible, he's the God of love. He's the God of hope, the God of comfort, the God of peace, right? And there's many other character attributes about him. So when the Bible says something that doesn't quite line up with his character attributes, then I need to take a little bit deeper look at it, right? So while it says it's impossible for these people to come back to repentance, that sounds hopeless. Well, the God we serve is the God of hope. I don't think that's what he's saying, right? So then we need to look, well, where else does it talk about this in the Bible? And that's what we do. So we just go to see where else does it talk about this? What's that? Uh, I have that here. You want me to look that up for you? Uh, the Bible says many things about the God we serve. He's the God of all comfort. All comfort comes to God from God. He's the God of hope. He's the God of peace. He's a God of love. God is love, the Bible says. I think last time I dropped the Bible... I might have lost my paper when I said this. Next time we get together, I'll go over it. I have a paper that talks about all the attributes of God. Just And it wasn't, all I did was just do like a search in Blue Letter Bible for God is. And then what does it say God, what does the Bible say God is? We can go over that next time. And yes, when I come to a part in the Bible that doesn't line up with one of those, I just look further into what it says. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes, that makes sense. Okay, so I think one of the times that God uses these sharp contradictions is to get our attention. Another place that um, we read, I think, is to make a point. So let's go to Luke chapter 14, verse 26.
Luke uh, 14, 26. So, there are many places where Jesus says some hard things in the Bible, hard things to understand, and this is one of them. So, Luke chapter 14, we'll actually start in verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned to them to say, and he, let me start over. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to be a builder of a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? least after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet he, to meet him, who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So, that sounds pretty harsh. Hate your mother and father. Hate your wife and children, brothers and sisters? Do you think that's what God's really intending? I don't think so. Because all throughout the Bible, I don't read that he tells us to hate. What I would say to you in this text is that the translators might not have got it quite right. It would probably be better translated to love less. And he uses very sharp words to explain how much less. I love my family, right? But I'm to love God a whole lot more. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying here. So, there are many places in the Bible where God says hard things. Jesus says difficult things to understand, right? And what's the best way to understand them? To read more of his word. We should be reading our Bible every single day. Spending time with him. Spending time in prayer. And when I get to a hard place that's hard to understand, what's one of the best things I can do? Ask God to help me understand it, right? Does that make sense? So, let's go to one other place where Jesus has some hard things to say. And that's found in John chapter 6. Let's start in verse 53. John chapter 6, verse 53.
So John chapter 6, verse 53. Are you guys there? Mm-hmm. Are you going to make it? I'll just wait for you there. You good? John chapter 6, verse 53. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds me will live because of me. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These, he, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them. So that's important. Jesus knew in himself. So they said to themselves, right? They said to themselves, this is a hard understanding, right? But everything you say, God is listening to. There's nothing you say in secret. Right? God hears it all. So Jesus heard their complaints. Many times we read that, especially when it came with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and dealing with Jesus, that they would say something in their hearts and Jesus would respond to them out loud. God hears everything we say. In our hearts, in our minds, in conversations with others, he hears it all. So Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this. And he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh profits nothing. The word that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning, so they who did not believe, and who would be betray, who would betray him and he said therefore i have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the father from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more then jesus said to the 12 do you also want to go away but simon peter answered him lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life. Also, you have come, also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So we read he had some hard things to say, eating my flesh, drinking my blood. There's a certain denomination of churches that's taken that literally. 
which they think that when they take communion, that the the blood there that the bread and wine actually turn into his body and blood, and then you eat it, and that's just not true. And if this was the only place the Bible talked about it, then I could say yes, you could believe that. But the Bible talks about this the idea of communion in many other places, and that this is a, a representation, right? So, anyways, he has some hard things to say, but he also had lots of people following him who weren't really truly believing in him. So he has some hard things to say, and he still says these hard things. We read through them in his word. And what is our response? Well, we can walk away saying this is too hard to understand, or we can continue to spend time in his word, ask him to help us, guide us through this. Like Peter said, where else would we go, right? You have the words of eternal life. So another reason that Jesus would say, Difficult things is to test people, right? Oftentimes, and we've been over this, oftentimes he taught in parables, telling stories. And if you quickly read the story and make a quick superficial distinction on God's character, because oftentimes the stories are a reflection of God's character or trying to teach you about God's character, you can make the wrong, the wrong distinction or the wrong idea. But if you take a minute to look deeper into the story, Look at other places in the Bible that talk about similar things. Let the scripture, like the Bible, interpret the Bible to guide you through it. Look at the whole Bible. What does the whole Bible say about this subject I'm reading about? Then we begin to have a better understanding. So when we press deeper into God, we have a better understanding. When we just make a quick, superficial decision on who God is, we oftentimes make the wrong one. Just like these people made the wrong one. Well, this man must not be the Messiah. This is too hard to understand. Was that the right character description of Jesus? No, that was the wrong one. So Jesus often says hard things, um, and it's often a test of our faithfulness. Are we going to continue on with him, or are we going to walk away? Right? So does that give you a better understanding of why he would say some hard things? Mm -hmm. Yes. There's some hard things to test people. Um, Yes, makes sense. Okay, so back to our, our Hebrews chapter 6, where we left off. He says it's impossible for these people to come back. I hope that you all understand now that while it may be impossible, humanly speaking, it's not impossible for God, right? So what do we do when we have friends who have walked away from the church or walked away from their faith or no longer walking with God? Do we go and take the Bible and beat it over their head or go tell them where they're living they're wrong? The Bible says this. No. We love them. We are a light and a witness to them by how we live our lives. And we spend time regularly praying to God for them, right? In supplication. We bring others' needs before our own in our prayer life. That's important. We can pray about things that we need or for ourselves we should often bring other people's needs for God also, right? And so, how do we love our enemies? We treat them the way we'd want to be treated. We pray for them regularly. God, please bless my enemies. Is that an easy prayer to pray? No. So, that is where we'll end today, unless you have any questions. That was a lot to go through.
Yeah, imagine you don't have at least one question that came through your mind. I had one question, but then I figured out um, any stupid questions. I don't know if there's any stupid questions. Well, it kind of was, because I was like, wait, I shouldn't ask that. I know you said it before, and I just which one? What was your question? Well, my question was, oh my God, I forgot. It was long. <laughs> it was a long question. <laughs> okay. And it was about the arrows and the robots. Oh, the fiery, fiery darts. Arrows. Yep. There's something about that. And I was like, why did you, it has something to do with like me saying, why could he makes those, like, make, in the Bible, like, why does he make, uh, you know, not real, not real? Those fiery darts. So the, the fiery darts are, he gives us a description of something that we can visualize in our head because he's talking about the unseen world. He's talking about this spiritual battle that we've never seen, right? So he's giving us a visualization of something, this fiery dart coming at us. And then we can block it with the shield of faith. So he gives us a visualized image of what this spiritual battle looks like. Yeah. That makes sense? It, it was longer. It took longer. Like, the question was a lot longer because it's like, wait a second, I'm thinking all these, like, scenarios and stuff. Yeah, and oftentimes the Bible gets you to think, right? Think about other things. Now be careful because a lot of times I start thinking about things and then I get distracted. I'm thinking about something nothing to do with what I'm reading or about God, right? And I just have to, God, please forgive me for that. Bring me back to your study. Does that yeah, make sense? I was kind of off of my own little world for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so the best thing you do is, God, please forgive me. Bring me back into your study. Right? Okay. So how do we handle these spiritual attacks? With prayer. Just like that. That's a great example. So, anything else? Rose? No? Do you have no questions or comments? Okay. Should we pray? Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to come together to just learn more about who you are. I do ask that you would speak to each of our hearts, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would speak loudly to us. You would make it clear when you want us to move. That you would help us to be that light and witness to you. That you would help us to be truthful in all we do. Wear that breastplate of righteousness as we walk with you regularly. That we would use our lives that you have given us, that you have bought at a high price, that we would use these lives to be a reflection of you, to lead people, to point people to who you are. You are the King. You are our Savior. You are the Messiah. You are God among us, God with us. I'm very thankful for all of that. I'm very thankful for your sacrifice on the cross. When we believe in you, you never leave us. You never walk away. You never abandon us. I just ask that you would watch over us today, that you would protect us, uh, watch over this baseball game, that you would be glorified today, and that many would come to know you through the work that your son did on the cross for each and every one of us. 
In Jesus' mighty name, I pray all these things. Amen. Amen.